comment about what Chris shared with. I appreciated what you said, Chris. Um, maybe just one comment concerning that. He instructed or challenged you youth to go out and turn California upside down. Maybe we should say go out and turn it right side up. All right. Well, bless you. Yeah, and I also just want to make a comment to Ben. I appreciate, you know, there's does something to me when I see young men weep for those who are lost. And I um, appreciate that. Well, this morning I'd like to talk to the fathers and potential fathers. And um, God... Uh, has put on my heart a desire to teach men and fathers his principles and his ways. I remember as a young father, um, I remember observing other families, certain families that seemed to have had well-adjusted children, children who love the Lord, children who are following his ways. Not perfect, but those who were at peace with themselves and with their parents those in authority uh, over them. And I remember thinking and wondering, you know, what, what causes some families to, to have children that respond that way and other families that maybe don't? Is it, is, is it just by chance? Is it just like Russian roulette? Uh, it's the luck of the draw. Is there anything I can do? Is there anything, is it just totally God that determines that? And uh, I want to talk to you young fathers that are here this morning and that are standing in the shoes where I was probably nearly 25 to 30 years ago. And I just want to affirm to you this morning that God has given us principles in Scripture which if applied according to His standard, can help achieve some of the goals that we have for our families. And I'm not here this morning trying to give you a formula or something that you can, you know, uh, that's, a, that's a surefire uh, success story. But scriptural principles are given to us. They are standards that are given to us that help guide us in making life choices and life decisions that will ultimately help shape and determine the end result. And so I just think it's important for us to think of life in terms of principles. And that's what I lay, want to lay out before you this morning. Uh, the title that I've given the message is Fathers of Influence. Uh, Brother Laverne was concerned that when he gave a, a uh, knowing that this was on, on my horizon, he was concerned that if he shares a Father's Day message, it would overlap, and, and uh, I think we're going two different directions in some ways, um, so that's fine. Some of the passages do overlap a bit. But the prophet Malachi, um, the very last two verses in the Old Testament, Prophet Malachi spoke prophetically about John the Baptist, and in this case he was referred to as Elijah, 
but he was referring to John the Baptist. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet, or John the Baptist, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. I was struck, I can't help but note the prophetic statement that Malachi makes. This is not just a suggestion. This is not just a passive ideology where Locke determines the fate. The statement is given as a promise. I will, or he will, he will turn the hearts toward one another. Now let me just ask you a question. What was the context of John's ministry? What would you say was, if you would just sort of encapsulate his ministry, what would you say it was? If someone has their Bible, would somebody quickly read Luke 3.3? 3? <clears throat> Luke 3.3, 3, it's talking about John the Baptist. So we could probably wrap it up saying that his ministry revolved around repentance for the remission of sin. Repentance for the remission of sin. And so I would like to suggest to you that the promise that is given in Malachi, based upon the ministry of John the Baptist, must start with repentant fathers. There's a caveat, however, in that verse, in that verse Malachi, that if fathers refuse to repent, it says that I will come and strike the earth with a curse. Now that word curse is one of the harshest terms in scripture. It means to completely annihilate. Completely annihilate. It's the same word that's used. It's interpreted differently in the English, but it's the same uh, Hebrew word that is used back in Joshua chapter 6, when speaking of the destruction of Jericho, and it says, Now the city shall be doomed by the, by the Lord to destruction. That word doomed is the same word as the word cursed there in Malachi. And it means complete annihilation. We know what happened to the walls of Jericho, the city of Jericho. It was completely destroyed. And John, or Malachi was saying, that John the Baptist is going to come. He's going to come with the ministry of repentance, remission for the uh, repent, uh, repentance for the remission of sins. And if the fathers do not repent, then I will completely annihilate the earth. And friends, I believe we are witnessing the fulfillment of that verse all around us when we witness kids shooting kids, when many of our schools have armed guards at the doorway and they have metal detectors, and when people are afraid to walk our city streets alone unless they themselves are armed. I 
I would just like to say that these are not NRA-related issues, as Satan would want us to get tangled up in. I think we're facing these issues because fathers have failed to repent from their selfish ways. Fathers continue to pursue their own pleasure rather than the pleasure of their the, than the, the hearts of their children. Fathers chasing the almighty dollar rather than, than pursuing the hearts of their children. Fathers who are not living consistently that uh, lines up with God's holiness. Fathers who are uncommitted in their marriage and by virtue are exemplifying to their children that vows are irrelevant. Fathers who have lost their moral compass and are, 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 uh, are feeding their central desires by a smorgasbord of pornographic media that blows gigantic holes in their umbrella protection to their family. Fathers who would rather kill their children than take their manly responsibility and to care for their own sons and daughters. So, friends, I don't think we should be surprised when we hear of another tragic shooting and the mass murder that is taking around the globe, that's taking place around the globe. Malachi prophesied this kind of doom if fathers refuse to, to, to repent. And so this morning, I would just like to, I would just like to put a plea out to you, each one here this morning, every father that's here this morning, and potential fathers, who, uh, just to look in our own hearts, and, and ask ourselves the question, where am I in relation to, to my relationship with the Lord? And am I living in such a way? What idols am I following that are causing others to stumble? This morning, I would like to have you turn to the book of 2 Samuel. There's a tragic father-son story in the Old Testament and uh, Brother Laverne touched on it briefly in his message a couple weeks ago. But this is where I'd like to take the context of, our, of our, uh, our message from this morning. It's the story of David and Absalom. And as much as we applaud David, and certainly Scripture affirms that God called him a man after his own heart, David had some glaring inconsistencies. And one of these that we see is his broken relationship with his son Absalom. The story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 13 when, uh, when uh, Amnon, uh, Absalom's half-brother, uh, rapes Absalom's sister Tamar. And Tamar is extremely distraught at the violation, and rightly so, I might add. And when David hears about it, it says that David, when David heard of all these things, the things that happened with Amnon and Tamar, it says that David was very angry. However, interestingly enough, he does nothing about it. Now, we don't read of any kind of intervention that he pursued, or according to the law, Amnon really should have been stoned to death. Uh, this, uh, this is a very typical response 
uh, under the law, when there was this kind of a violation, they were supposed to be stoned to death. And uh, David does nothing. And David responded in a way that is very typical to men who are put in situations that they don't know how to respond to. We go silent. That's typically the way that we respond. Uh, this is a weakness of our, of our character as males. Adam did the same thing. When Eve took of the forbidden fruit, he did not rebuke her. He did not stop her. In fact, he participated in the disobedience. And it's times like these fathers that we need to step up to the plate and deal with the situation. And not only did David remain silent, not only did he ignore the situation, but he also demonstrated partiality. He made an exception for his son. And again, I would just like to say, parents, this is, this is an area in our lives as parents that this is so easy for us to do with our children um, is to make exceptions for, for, for the sins of our children and uh, come to their defense rather than helping them work through and finding freedom and deliverance from the things that, that, that are, are weighing them down. And even a man after God's own heart makes the same mistake. One of the greatest gifts, I think, that we can give our erring children is to help them come to repentance rather than ignore or defend the wrong. Now Absalom, on the other hand, was not appeased by his father's silence and... Uh, and, and his partiality. In fact, his, his response, he was also angry, and uh, his anger eventually turned to a murderous uh, intent with time. And it says that he spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar, or he had raped his sister Tamar. Nothing was done about the situation for two years. Everything went silent. For two years, this situation was not addressed. And for two whole years, Absalom's anger and his bitterness was brewing and simmering toward Amnon. And unfortunately, during this time, David kept silent on the sidelines. He didn't deal with it. And nor did he deal with, uh, with Absalom's heart that was erring. He didn't deal with his son Amnon the way he should have, nor did he pursue Absalom's heart, knowing that Absalom was angry towards his brother. Had he dealt with the situation, he may have, he may have thwarted a, a murder or prevented a murder down the road. But since he did nothing, Absalom took matters in his own hands. And during the time of sheep shearing, he had gone away and he was involved in sheep shearing. And he invites his dad and his brothers to come down and he was going to throw a big party. I'm guessing that was probably a, a normal occurrence. Maybe it was a time of celebration 
after the sheep shearing was done. But David responds to him and says, no, 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 no. It's going to make way too much for you to have everyone down there. And uh, it's going to be too much if we all come down there. And so Absalom insists and he says, well, at least send your brother or your sons, my brothers, to come down. And, uh, and so he did. But what, what he didn't know was that he, Absalom had instructed his servants. And he had told them, uh, he said, Now watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And so now, not only do they have a situation of rape in their family, now a brother kills a brother. And uh, initially the the message came back to David that all his sons were killed by Absalom, but uh, David's brother uh, Shimei uh, gave him the correct information. He said, no, 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 it's just Amnon that's killed. And uh, there was just a lot of chaos going on within the family. In fact, we see that in one of the next verses. It says, And the king, David, and all his servants wept very bitterly. And so there's just a lot of turmoil going on in the family. After this event, after Absalom killed his brother Amnon, he fled to Geshur about 60 miles away. And the question I had to ask myself, well, why did he go to Geshur? What took him there? 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, gives an indication why he went to Geshur. It says in giving the genealogy of David and his sons that Absalom's mother, it says in 1 Samuel 3, verse 3, was the daughter of the king of Geshur. So he went to his, his maternal grandparents. Absalom ran to his maternal grandparents after he killed Amnon. And maybe that's what caused David to be a little bit inhibited to pursue David or to pursue Absalom. But he, what we do know is that David did not run after Absalom. He did not go pursue him. So now, not only have two years passed, Absalom runs to Geshur, and he's there for three years. He's he's there with his his grandfather. Uh, in Geshur for three years. In verse 37, it says that David mourned for his son every day. And it says later on, just a couple verses later, it says David longed to go see Absalom. Well, why didn't he go see him? Why didn't he go talk to him? I don't know. Was he intimidated by his, by his, uh, his, wife, by his in-laws, the king of Geshur? Uh, I'm not sure why he didn't go, but he didn't. He just couldn't face the situation. What we do know is that there's a very broken father-son relationship, and neither party is willing to make a move to restore it. So finally, a third party intervenes in this whole situation. David had a general uh, whose name was Joab. Joab, as we know, was an exceptional warrior. He was a bloody man. He was a fighter. And he was an exceptional warrior. 
and he had won David's confidence. They had worked together long enough uh, for Joab to know and to be able to discern David's thoughts. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 1, it says that Joab perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And so Joab sets up this meeting. And I'm not going to go into it because of the sake of time, but you can read it in chapter 14. He hires this wise woman who disguises herself as a widow and, and, uh, and, and in a long story made short, she tells the king that she had two sons and the two son, sons, uh, she was a widow. She first of all told him she's a widow and she had two sons remaining. The two sons were out in the field. They got into an argument and the one killed the other. And the rest of the family rose up against her and wanted to do justice to the murderer. They wanted to kill the murderer, the, the other son. And so the woman is here in disguise, pleading to David for the life of her other son. She said, if they destroy him, my heir is gone. There will be no one to carry my, father's, or my husband's name. Well, David is very reluctant to give this widow um, help. Because he knows what the law says. He knows that the man should be, should be stoned to death because he had killed someone else. And uh, so, so he just pushes her off. And she insistently comes back the second time and begs for her son's life. And she said, in fact, I will take the guilt of my son if you spare his life so that there will be an heir. Well, David then makes a response to her and he says, well, I will, I will make sure that no one touches or harms you. He didn't, he didn't address the son, the murderer. He addressed her. He said, I will make sure that you're protected. Uh, this wasn't good enough for her. So she came back and says, no, 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 no. That's not good enough. I want to be assured that my son won't be destroyed. And then the third time after she came back to him, he said, I will make sure that no hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. At that point, the woman pulls all the stops and she says, why then are you guilty of doing the same thing to the kingdom of Israel? Basically, what she was saying is, you, see, Absalom was next in line. He was the one, he was the, the one that was in line to take the heir, uh, to be the heir of Israel, to be the next king. So why are you then taking away uh, the, the heir of Israel by annihilating your son? And at that point, David realizes, says, is Joab involved in this whole scheme? And she said, yes, it is. he is. Well, because of that appeal, David says to Joab, he, uh, he, he, he instructs Joab that he can go and bring Absalom back from Geshur. Now listen to what he says. And the king said, he's talking to Joab, let him return to his own house, him meaning Absalom, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. 
You can imagine the bitterness that is brewing in the heart of Absalom. Not only was there two years after Tamar was raped and before he killed his brother Amnon, then another three years passed while he was a Gesher. Now he's back in Jerusalem again with his father, or at least in the same house where he used to live, but another two years pass without David once talking to Absalom. Seven years. Seven years of silence between Absalom and David. And finally, Absalom had faced his limits, fueled by wrath of seven years of silence and his father's lack of communication and to act upon the past, Absalom demanded that he talk to Joab. He sent a, a messenger over to Joab, says, Joab, I want to talk to you. Joab also goes silent. I don't know why he didn't respond to Absalom, but he doesn't respond to Absalom. <laughs> and so Absalom takes his servants, he says, I want you to go set, no, sorry, he did the second time. He sent a messenger the second time. And Absalom's, Absalom refused to, to respond to the request to come talk to Absalom. Joab, sorry. Joab refused to, uh, to uh, respond to Absalom's request to talk to him. So Absalom says to his servants, I want you to go out and set Joab's barley fields on fire. Which they did. And this got Joab's attention. But you know, even that act, those burning barley fields of fire, I think were an indication of the fire that was burning uh, uh, in Absalom's heart. Fire of bitterness and anger and, and contempt <laughs> is a picture <clears throat> of what was going on in Absalom's heart. And when Joab finally comes to Absalom, he says, hey, why'd you set my barley fields on fire? Absalom said, I asked you to come twice and you never responded, and I want to talk to you. He said, I want to see the face of my father. And if he wants to kill me, kill him. Let him kill me. So be it. And then he sort of mutters under his breath, it would have been better for me to stay a Gesher than to come back and not talk to dad. I think we probably could put in our own words behind that response, who cares? Well, Joab did arrange a time for his father to come and meet Absalom. And there was some form of reconciliation. But unfortunately, the seeds of bitterness that had been sown was soon going to bear fruit in the form of conspiracy and rebellion. And I don't know whether Absalom understood his actions, his own actions, or not completely. He did to the men of Israel what he apparently wished that his father would have done to him. <clears throat> in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 6, it gives an enlightening principle that caused Absalom 
to steal. It says that Absalom stole the heart of the men of Israel. His response was, was out of his own hurt and his own annihilation from his father. You see, hurt people hurt people. They always do. Alienated people alienate people. Bitter people connect with bitter people. Rebels, find rebels. And it was no different for Absalom. And before the chapter ends in chapter 15, we see David is running for his life and Absalom, the rebel, has taken the throne. Now the question I have to ask is, how did Absalom, how did Absalom steal the hearts of the people? How did he sway the people from their loyalty to David? How did he gain their trust and their confidence? And I would like to suggest that there, are th- there, there is a principle that we see in this story. And I think for the sake of time, I'm only going to hit uh, the, the first portion of it and maybe follow through in another message. I told my co-pastors that I'm really struggling. I, I just had a lot more material content than time would allow, and then we went late. And so I'm just going to give you part of this principle. It's a principle that I've dubbed gaining hearts principle. The method that Absalom used is what I call the gaining hearts principle. Absalom was shrewd enough to realize that this principle worked. Unfortunately, the bitterness in his heart caused him to use it in a rebellious manner against his father. Absalom acted out what he desired his dad would have done for him. And fathers, what I want to just what I want to what I want to challenge you to is rather than doing like Absalom did in a rebellious state, use, it, use, this, pro, use this principle in a proactive way. Fathers can apply this principle in a positive manner to gain the hearts of their children. There's three aspects to this principle. But before we go into that, let's read this passage of Scripture. It's the first six verses in 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After this happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots, and by the way, it was, it's referring to the time that David and him reconciled to some degree. Um, David came, Absalom bowed himself, they kissed each other, and there was a, a, some type of reconciliation that happened. But I just think the, the relationship had just disintegrated far enough that, that uh, Absalom's rebellious heart at that point caused him to do something that I'm not even sure if he entirely understood how it was going to all play out. Verse 1, after this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, 
what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy in the king to, of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would uh, say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. I'm just going to touch on the first one. In this story, it says that Absalom would call to the people who were passing by. In other words, Absalom made himself available to talk to the people. He initiated conversation. The first part of this principle, gaining hearts principle, that I want to challenge you fathers to, is to talk to your children. He positioned himself in a strategic place so they would give opportunity for people to engage him in a conversation. Notice how he took interest in their lives and in things that were on their mind. Obviously, he, his actions were fostered by ulterior motive, but it worked. And fathers, I just want to tell you, I just want to instruct you to talk to your children. This is one of the three ways that you can gain their confidence and gain their heart. Think of how you can use words and conversations to your benefit. There's two things that I see that talking does. Number one is it shows interest. You can use words in conversation to show your personal interest in your child's life. I'm sure all of you have engaged in conversation where the entire dialogue was one-sided. And uh, it doesn't take you very long to wonder whether the only thing that is on their mind is about themselves. They never ask you any questions about you. They never, they never wonder what's happening in your life. It's all about what's happening in their life. Everything revolves around them. How long is it before you wonder if they care about anything else but themselves. I remember during the time that we transitioned back from Canada, uh, we had many, many table conversations after supper and around supper time where we would engage our children. How are you doing? How is the transition going? What are the things that you're facing? What are you feeling? And not only did we ask them, we told them what we're struggling with. I just think, Father, that our children need to hear not only us pursuing them about their lives, they need to hear what we're struggling with and what we deal with, how tough things are that we face as well. They need to help, they, we need to help them understand how to work through tough situations in life. 
Dads, talking to your children is one of the ways you gain their heart. I'm not just referring to the kinds of conversations, uh, or I'm, I'm, I'm referring to the kinds of conversations that pursues their heart. Obviously, the ty- the, any type of conversation needs to be age-adjusted. But it starts with you, with, with, with young children. It starts with lap babies. Because age does not discriminate against the need for fathers to show interest in the child's life. I've told my daughters early on, as they were growing into adulthood and on into their adulthood, I've told my daughters that there are three essential areas of interest that I will need to know about every man that pursues a relationship with them. Now, there are other questions that I ask, but I think all the other questions sort of filter under these three areas. I want to know what the young man's relationship is like with, his, with, with God. It's one of the questions I ask. What's your relationship like with God? And then I want them to tell me about their relationship with their parents. What's your relationship like with your parents? And then I ask the third question, or the third point that I would like to have some information on is how, uh, tell me about your finances. And people have asked me already, why that? Well, your finances, probably more than anything else in your life, reveals your character. It'll reveal selfishness. It'll reveal arrogance. It'll reveal generosity. You know, it even reveals moral uh, issues. It, it is a reveal. It's probably one of the reasons why two-thirds of the prince or parables that Jesus taught revolved around finances. It reveals so much about the heart. Well, when I first had a conversation with Josh, and um, we went out of town and we had a, a breakfast together, and I was wanting to get to know him a little bit. He was pursuing a relationship with Liz. And one of the questions that I asked him, I said, tell me on a scale of one to 10, what is your relationship like with your dad, with 10 being exceptionally good and number one being strained and distant? And it didn't take Josh but a second to to reply confidently that his relationship with Brian, his father, was 10 plus. Wow. He got my attention. And I leaned forward and I said, tell me more about it. And as I have interacted with Josh over this past year, I have noticed numerous times how he, how he holds his parents, particularly his father, with high honor. And I've since had the privilege of meeting Brian numerous times and even in phone conversations. And I know that he engages his children at a heart level. And I also know him good enough to know that if he would know that I'm using him as an example this morning, he would be very quick to give God the glory. But I use him as an example to encourage you young fathers 
to pursue the hearts of your children by talking with them. Ask them questions. Ask them about their relationship with God. Ask them about their moral purity. Help them navigate through the transition of childhood into adulthood. Ask them about their goals, their dreams, their ambitions. Help guide them in these decisions. Tell them that you care about them. These are the kinds of things that we talk about. In, 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 and I would just say you initiate the conversation with them. You see, talking, words, conveys values. And, and we'll get to that. And that's the second point, but I'm going to stop there. Words are used to share values. And uh, I want to pick up with this. I think we're going to close at this point. Uh, but uh, that's the first part of the principle of this uh, idea of gaining hearts of your children. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come before you thanking you and praising you for your kindness and goodness, your love and mercy. Lord, I want to pray in an anointing upon every father that is here this morning. Lord, I am the first to raise my hand and admit so many times that I've failed and, and where I could have done better and should have done better. And Lord, we are so appreciative that you do, you are a God of second chances and, and you do give us other opportunities, Lord. And so I would just pray that from the youngest to the oldest, we would have the ability to make wise decisions as we, as we shepherd our families. Lord, give us a pastor heart. Give us a shepherd heart. Lord, reveal areas in our own heart that would hinder us from gaining the hearts of our children. And should there be broken relationships here this morning, uh, maybe not to the extent that David and Absalom had, but maybe strained relationships, oh God, I would pray as a God uh, who reconciles, I would pray that there would be reconciliation. Give every dad wisdom and understanding. And Lord, words come easier maybe for some of us than for others. And for those who, who, are, who find it difficult, give them courage. Give them a courageous heart to engage and to, uh, and to talk to their children. Bless and keep, Lord. We give you thanks. And thank you, Father, that you are the perfect heavenly Father. And we can look to you as an example. We pray this in your name with thanksgiving. Amen and amen.